This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning, everyone. Um, I see that uh, Zoketsu Norman has joined us. Greetings. And greetings to all uh, who are Zooming in, visiting us today. Welcome to the Austin Zen Center's Zoom Zendo. It's wonderful to have so many people here. This is a, a, a teacher who really needs no introduction, and yet we are called upon to say something. <laughs> so uh, Norman Fisher, well known to many of you, all of you, former abbot of San Francisco Zen Center and the founder and uh, teacher, a guiding teacher of the Everyday Zen uh, Foundation and, and uh, lineage. Norman uh, trained largely uh, well, trained through San Francisco Zen Center, but uh, also through Berkeley Zen Center, and was transmitted by Sojin Mel Weitzman, who's also my Dharma grandfather, um, and this lineage is very dear to us because it includes our founder, Blanche Hartman. And Norman is a prolific uh, writer, a poet, an interfaith dialogue person who has brought his original tradition of Judaism and Buddhism together in a way that I, as a, uh, having brought up Catholic, find extremely helpful and uh, illuminating, and a, a teacher known for his clarity and his compassion. So uh, I'd like to welcome him on behalf of everyone here, and especially Austin Zen Center. We hope to see you in person when that's possible soon. <laughs> Thanks, Jodo. Morning, everybody. Nice to see you all. I've been to the Austin Zen Center many times, and uh, I really, I really like it there. And I'm sorry that uh, today I'm there only this way on the screen, and not person to person, feeling everyone's presence, uh, feeling the room, feeling the house and the surroundings. As you know, uh, in our practice, being being person to person, face to face, Buddha to Buddha, is a really important thing. There is something about just our physical presence together that uh, is very healing. Uh, you can't even put your finger on what is it. We practice with our body, maybe our mind a little bit, but really mostly with our body. We, we sit and we breathe side by side. Uh, my practice for many years has been to meet you face to face in the Dokusan room. This being face to face Buddha to Buddha is a cornerstone of our practice. It's, it's one of the things that really defines Dogen's way. And in Shobogenzo, there are two, among others, two really important fascicles. Uh, one is called Only a Buddha and a Buddha. Another is called Face-to-Face -face Transmission. And in both of these fascicles, Dogen speaks about how important it is that we practice together, warm body to warm body. 
He says that the Dharma is more profound than anyone could ever understand. Even a Buddha can't understand it. Only a Buddha and a Buddha, he says, together can appreciate it. So I'm saying all this this morning, uh, not, not to diminish our being together in this way, which has many blessings. For instance, uh, I didn't have to get on an airplane to be with you and you can be together with one another from many places, right? So that's a blessing. So I don't want to diminish the, the goodness of this way of being together, but only to say that uh, it is really important to be together in the same space. And that in a way, the goodness of our being together in this way has a kind of poignancy to it because it reminds us of what it could feel like to be together in the same space. And it makes us appreciate even more in a way, the actual presence of one another, which we sort of sense on the screen, but we don't feel in quite the same way. Dogen's teaching of only a Buddha and a Buddha and face-to-face transmission uh, comes from the Lotus Sutra, a text that was formational for Dogen. Dogen ordained first as a young uh, Tendai monk, I think he was only 12 or 13 when he ordained. And at that time, there, there really was no Zen in Japan. And the Tendai school is based largely on the Lotus Sutra. So Dogen was immersed in the Sutra as a boy and had great faith in it. That's why we mentioned the Lotus Sutra oddly in the list of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that we chant uh, at meals and at other times when we want to, when we feel the need, you know, to summon these spiritual presences to join us because we need the help, we, we chant their names, you know, Maitreya Buddha and Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva and so on, you know, the list. And, the, and oddly, at the end of the list, we chant Lotus of the Wondrous Dharma Mahayana Sutra. You, you know that. We add that to the list of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas because Dogen added it. Because his whole life through, he maintained his deep connection to the Lotus Sutra. I've been uh, in our Dharma seminar uh, in everyday Zen, we've been in practice period and we've been studying the Lotus Sutra. I've been talking about it for a few months now and saying a lot, a lot, that one point of view about the Lotus Sutra is that there is no Lotus Sutra actually taught or preached in the Lotus Sutra. If you analyze the 28 chapters of the Lotus Sutra, and carefully examine its many prose and verse sections and think about its seven famous parables, you realize that they're not exactly the Lotus Sutra. All of them are about the Lotus Sutra, about why the Lotus Sutra is so important, why it's maybe the most important or the only important sutra and how it's important 
its place in the hierarchy of other Buddhist teachings, the many virtues and blessings you will receive if you pay attention to the Lotus Sutra, all the trillions and billions of Buddhas in the past who have taught the Lotus Sutra, the many assemblies of Bodhisattvas and Arhats who have listened to the Lotus Sutra. You, you hear about all of that, but actually, nowhere does it ever say, and this is what it says in the Lotus Sutra. It actually seems to be not there. And to those of us immersed in the Soto Zen tradition, doesn't that just make sense, right? Doesn't, doesn't that seem very familiar? It's just like the teaching of our school, like Dogen's teaching, and really of all of the Zen, various Zen streams, the teaching is there and it's not there. There is and there isn't a teaching. Dogen uh, felt that Soto Zen is the essence of the Buddha Dharma, the way to freedom and happiness and truth and reality in our lives. And we feel that, right? And we practice a long time and we believe it. We feel because we feel it, you know, it's our experience. And we really appreciate the teaching. But when someone says, like, what is the teaching of Soto Zen? We kind of scratch our head, you know. What is the teaching of the Lotus Sutra? Well, it never says in the Lotus Sutra exactly what it is. And, and you know, you listen to a lot of Dharma talks and nobody ever quite is able to tell you, you know, what is this teaching? It's, if you study Zadogan's writings, if you study the Zen stories and in the many collections and commentaries and so on, it's pretty obvious that uh, if you try to say, what the teachings are, as soon as you open your mouth, you're going to be wrong, because that won't be it. But on the other hand, if you say, well, there is no teaching, or there's nothing to the teaching, or the teaching is just to be silent, then 30 blows, you know, you're wrong again. I know you guys are in practice period two at, uh, in Austin, and uh, your theme, uh, someone told me, is uh, taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. That's your theme. And I wish that I could have uh, heard all the talks and discussions that you've been having so far so I could talk to you today in better continuity with what your discussion has been. But, uh, so I, I apologize if, I, if I'm missing, you know, most of where, where you're at in your discussion. But what I want to add uh, today is the thought that taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha is taking refuge in this one unsayable, indefinable truth that our practice points toward and that the Lotus Sutra points toward. And further, that this deepest of all refuges, this deepest of all truths is found in the body, in my body and in your body and in our being embodied together.
one of the most uh, memorable and uh, unusual events that takes place in the Lotus Sutra is the sudden emergence from out of the earth of a great jeweled stupa. Shakyamuni Buddha is, is there teaching the great assembly. Everybody's gathered, monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, many bodhisattvas. And all of a sudden, in the middle of everything, this giant stupa, 40 miles high, suddenly emerges from out of the earth, which is, you know, astonishing. They're, they can't believe it. But then, even more astonishing, this giant voice booms from out of the stupa, praising Shakyamuni Buddha for his wonderful teaching. So now everybody realizes that, unbelievably, there seems to be a living Buddha inside the stupa. You know, stupas are memorials for Buddhas who, or other, sometimes they have texts in them or various kinds of relics, but they're memorials for, there's no living person in the stupa. So when they, when they hear this voice, they're, they're astonished and they say, well, open up the stupa. We want to see what's inside. But uh, it's not so simple to open up giant 40 mile high stupas that come from out of the ground. It, we learned that in order to do this, you have to um, summon all the emanation Buddhas from all the world systems to be there to witness this. Otherwise, you can't open it up. So this is not an easy task, right, to summon all these emanation Buddhas from all over the place. And, and furthermore, you can't just, you know, summon them and they come. You have to prepare the space for them. You, you have to do a serious job of re-engineering the Saha world. You have to get rid of certain kinds of evil creatures and change the landscape and create trees and thrones for them to sit on, trees to shade them. Big job. So Shakyamuni goes ahead and does this enormous job. And when all the emanation Buddhas from all the world systems, you can picture this, right? Everywhere you look, there's a Buddha sitting on a throne throughout the whole of the Saha world. Finally, when everyone is there, the Buddha sort of floats up into the air, faced, you know, even with the stupa, and, and opens up the giant lock of the door of the stupa, big door, you can imagine, like of a big city almost, like opening up. And inside, sure enough, there is a Buddha sitting there, Prabhutaratana Buddha, Buddha many treasures sitting on a great dharma seat. And he invites Shakyamuni Buddha to join him, and Buddha joins him, and the two of them are then sitting there inside this stupa, hovering in the air, side by side, on the same seat. Well, so you're picturing this, right? This is absolutely unprecedented. I mean, you probably never noticed this, but think about it. There's only ever one Buddha at a time, right? Because that's the way the universal system works. One Buddha 
per eon per universe. And, and we all know that Shakyamuni Buddha is the Buddha for our world and our eon. We know that in the coming eon, we're going to have Maitreya Buddha when this whole eon is over. It's very, I, I think it's very nice to think about Maitreya Buddha, who's the Buddha of friendliness, of love. That's the next Buddha. So we're going toward love and friendliness, even though it's a long journey, as we see, a lot of ups and downs. We've noticed the ups and downs, right? But we're going toward Maitreya Buddha. But only one Buddha per eon, per universe. Why? Well, traditional texts, texts explain that only one Buddha is needed. You only need one Buddha, and it would be a waste of a good Buddha, right, to have more than one Buddha. And also, apparently, there is not enough room, there is not enough physical space in one place and one era for more than one Buddha. Only one Buddha would fit. Anyway, in different ways, traditional texts explain to us why it is that there's only ever one Buddha at a time. So the idea that there are two Buddhas sitting there side by side in the stupa would be a very astonishing, unprecedented thing. And as I pointed out uh, in our everyday Zen seminar, and I'll say to you too, did you know that the tradition of Shuso, I guess you have a Shuso, right? Choro, you have a Shuso in your practice period? You don't. Well, you have in the past, I'm sure, and we do now in our practice period, but the tradition of Shuso comes from this. Two Buddhas sitting side by side. When in the entering ceremony for the Shuso, the teacher says, this student shares my seat and my responsibility. The teacher is referring to this image in the Lotus Sutra. And then in a classical monastery, literally, the Shuso sits on the same platform as the teacher, and they both sit facing the assembly. Everyone else is facing the wall. And all practice period long, day after day, Many, many times you enter the Zendo, you look and see this image of two Buddhas sitting side by side. Only a Buddha and a Buddha can understand this unsayable teaching. And now here in the Sutra, we see this enacted physically. A Buddha and a Buddha seated side by side. It's a very famous image that sometimes you see in Buddhist art, two Buddhists seated side by side in a stupa. And, and maybe this demonstrates why the Lotus Sutra is never taught in the Lotus Sutra. It's because the teaching of the Lotus Sutra can't be a doctrine or a state of mind or a feeling or an understanding 
or a knack for something. It's not a way of speaking or a way of seeing or thinking. It's two embodied Buddhas sitting side by side, only a Buddha and a Buddha. And out of their being together, just as we are together in our zendos, sitting side by side, mutually appreciating the Dharma, just as we are sitting now in this other way, side by side together. That is the teaching. The teaching is there, even though none of us know it or possess it. And that's what we take refuge in. Sometimes uh, they say that taking refuge in Buddha is taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. The three refuges are really one refuge. And that's why when we sow the Rakasu or Okesa, we just say Namu Kie Mutsu. I take refuge in Buddha because I take refuge in Buddha stands for I take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. And taking refuge in Buddha is two Buddhas sitting side by side. Because Buddha, we learn from the Lotus Sutra, is always Buddha and Buddha. And Buddha and Buddha is also Dharma and Sangha. It's all there. We return to the true nature of our being alive, which the Lotus Sutra says is that we are all Buddhas, every one of us, worthy of full respect and love. I think most of the rest of the sutra takes place while Shakyamuni Buddha is sitting with Prabhuta Ratana Buddha in this stupa. And while he's sitting there, Shakyamuni gives many other teachings about, not, not as I said before, not the Lotus Sutra itself, but about the Lotus Sutra. He talks about the many blessings that a person who receives and copies and recites and shares and understands and appreciates this sutra will receive. In the part that we were lately reading, he talks about the blessings of someone who uh, specifically is a teacher of this sutra, and, he, and he, he divides the blessings into six kinds of blessings, blessings associated with the six sense organs, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And then the chapter uh, that talks about that goes through the six and says, here are the blessings of the eyes, the blessings of the ears, the blessings of the nose, the blessings of the tongue, and so on. Because uh, 
an analysis of the senses and a discussion of the senses is one of the most important topics in all of Buddhist thought because the world we live in, we live in literally a world that is produced by our six sense organs. Our six sense organs for us are the world. So when the six sense organs are blessed, the entire world is blessed. So I want to quote a short paragraph here from the section on the blessings of the body. And I'm reading from Gene Reeves's more most recent translation of the Lotus Sutta. If you're interested, it's page 332. He's talking to a bodhisattva named Constant Effort. What's more, Constant Effort? If any good sons or good daughters receive and embrace this sutra, or if they read it, or if they recite it, or if they teach it, or if they copy it, they will obtain 800 blessings of the body, including a pure body, pure as lapis lazuli, which all the living delight to see. Because of the purity of their bodies, the living beings of the 3,000 great thousandfold world, as they are born or die, whether as superior or inferior, fine or ugly, or in good or bad places, all will be reflected in their pure bodies. So, in the other senses, it, you know, it talks about things you smell, things you see, things you hear, and how those experiences are purified. But here, what it says is a little bit not what you would expect. Because the body, as a sense organ, is like more or less sensations of the body and touch of the skin. But what the sutra is here offering is something a little different from that. The sutra seems to be saying that in the sense of your own body, as your body, in the very sensations of your body, in the experience of your being embodied, you will be able to feel the presence of all bodies. In other words, that your sensation of being embodied, purified by this great refuge, this great teaching, this great only a Buddha and a Buddha, will directly connect you to all physical being. And I think this is so profound. We understand pretty easily, you know, the sense of touch and other bodily sensations, pleasure, pain, you know, burning, itchiness, hot, cold. But we usually don't think of an other bodily sensation that is very salient, but we don't eat, we take it for granted so much we don't even know it's there. 
this sense that you have of the whole body as being an entity that is yours, a coherent entity that is yours. You look at your hand and you have the feeling, you, you don't say this to yourself, but it's just automatic, it's your hand. It's your foot, which is part of your body. It's your face that's part of your body. We take this completely for granted, but it's a, it's a sense. I mean, because there's a neurological disorder in which you lose that, and then you're like freaked out all the time. What's this hand doing there? How did it, who's, you know, whose hand is that? It's like, oh my God, it's like scary as hell. Man, imagine a hand suddenly appearing in front of you and you don't know whose it is. That's scary and kind of very strange. I guess they call this proprioception or something like that. The sense that we never even think about, that we have this being, this embodied, moving in space as a visual and a kinetic object that we feel and sense with all of our organs. So here in the Lotus Sutra, we're learning that a particular blessing of this one great refuge, this understanding, this faith in the teaching of the Sutra is that within your sense of proprioception, you feel the reflection of all other bodies. Imagine that. That the felt experience of your body would be a kind of expansiveness. It would be literally a direct perception of compassion. And I think of the story of the Buddha's original awakening when he's challenged by Mara and touches the earth. And I have a Buddha image, you know, that's like that, the Buddha's hand reaching down and touching the earth. It's an archetypal moment in the Buddha's life, often, again, depicted in art. And also, as I just said, the stupa in the Lotus Sutra appears from out of the earth. And, and later, in another famous moment in the Lotus Sutra, myriads of bodhisattvas emerge from out of the earth. So this is quite related, I think, because the earth is our mother in a very literal sense. You know, that's not a metaphor. The earth gives us our body. The earth is the fountainhead of all physicality, of all materiality. And our body actually literally is the earth. There's nothing in our body that is not made of earth elements. And when we as a person are no longer constituted, every drop of our materiality will return to the earth. As it says in Sandokai, you know, return 
home to the earth. Not a single molecule will be held back or lost. This very body is the body of Buddha and of myriad others. And imagine what it would feel like to know all this in our body sensation. To know that our body was the sacred and perfect nature of this impermanent, physical, earthly body. And I go on like this because for me, this is something very, very uh, personal, you know, and experiential. I've been sitting in Zazen my whole life, right? All my life, since I was a young man. And when I sit down and adjust my posture, and I can feel my body in space, it doesn't feel like my body. It feels like the body. <clears throat> All bodies. I feel like in my body is the shared experience we all have of being embodied. And in Hakuin's Song of Zazen, he says exactly that. This very body is the body of the Buddha. How are you doing? You still, you still with me? Okay, you're not too tired out? Okay, let's go on a little further. The next chapter, uh, chapter 20, that was from 19, what I just quoted. The chapter 20 presents, and we were really, really enjoying this on our Dharma seminar, one of the great characters in all of Buddhist literature, the Bodhisattva Sadaparibhuta, appears in chapter 20. Uh, Sadaparibhuta means never disparaging, never disrespectful. So I'll tell you his story. Once upon a time, a long time ago, there was a great Buddha named Majestic Voice King Buddha. And he was a great teacher who taught all the teachings and practices for the Arhats. He taught all the teachings and practices for the Prajeka Buddhas. He taught all the teachings and practices for Bodhisattvas, including the emptiness teachings, the compassion teachings, and the six paramitas. But there was still something very important that he had not yet taught. So this great Buddha had his era in which there was a period of strong Dharma, a period of not so strong Dharma, and a period of weak or even fake Dharma. After which a new Buddha was born who did the same round of teaching. And this exact pattern of a Buddha being born, teaching all this, three periods of Dharma, this happened a trillion times. And a trillion Buddhas were born, all named Majestic Voice King Buddha. 
Now, just as, as a little footnote, I guess you are familiar with this teaching from earliest Buddhism that the Dharma would have three, always have three periods. Because like everything else, the Dharma is impermanent. It doesn't last forever. It has to be renewed with the, with the coming of the new Buddha. So it has a strong period, a not so strong period, and then a period that it's like really not very strong at all. It's almost like fake. It doesn't work hardly at all. Anyway, in the time after the extinction of the first majestic voice king Buddha, during the time of his weak, fake dharma, there were a lot of corrupt and selfish monks around. And that's when, uh, that was the time of the bodhisattva named Sadaparibhuta, never disrespectful, because in this era in which he lived, practice was mostly corrupt and pretty useless. It didn't work very well. So this bodhisattva didn't do any other practice than bowing to people. He would come up to somebody and he would immediately bow to that person and he would say, I deeply, deeply respect you. I could never disrespect you because you are practicing the bodhisattva way and you are sure to become a Buddha. So that's all he did. He didn't recite sutras. He didn't meditate. He didn't make offerings. He didn't chant. All he did is bow to people and say this. And um, my favorite Zen, Soto Zen figure of all time, Ryokan in Japan, did the same thing. And, and, and we were doing this too. Remember when we were ages ago, when the pandemic was new, every day we were applauding the frontline workers. Remember that? We were expressing our respect and gratitude for the doctors and the nurses and the garbage collectors and the grocery store clerks and the delivery people. Somehow we stopped doing that, but we were, that was a version of this practice. Anyway, because there were so many corrupt and scornful people around, this bodhisattva was often yelled at, scorned for doing this odd practice. But he, nothing would stop him. He kept on doing it. People would throw things at him. And he would sort of move away, but still within distance so that he could say to them, I really respect you. I know you're going to be a Buddha someday. So he wasn't a martyr. He didn't let them throw things on him. You know, he tried to protect himself. But at the same time, he would never, ever give up. He couldn't help himself. He felt it so deeply, he couldn't but express it. So when this Bodhisattva was near death, suddenly... He heard from out of the sky millions and billions of verses from the Lotus Sutra that had previously been preached by the majestic voice King Buddha. And this lengthened his lifetime because he immediately accepted and received these verses and he attained great awakening and started teaching everybody these verses. And he lived a long time after that. And after his lifetime, he was then reborn into the land where there were hundreds and millions of other Buddhas one after another. He lived a long time. And he studied and taught the Lotus Sutra under these many Buddhas, and he awakened many, many more billions and trillions of other beings. So this is a wonderful story, I think. And it's saying to us that all the teachings of the Buddhism, including the Bodhisattva path, are really 
just leading to this one simple practice of holding and receiving the Lotus Sutra teaching, which is holding and receiving in our hearts the respect that we have for all embodied sentient beings who we know are Buddhists. And as we know from the story, this is practice is being proposed during corrupt and difficult times. In fact, maybe the implication is that it is the practice to be done during corrupt and difficult times. As Dogen believed, and Nichiren believed, and many others believed. In Dogen's time, we don't, we don't realize it now, but it was a very radical thing. Dogen got a lot of problems, you know, because of his radical teaching. But basically, Dogen was saying, just do Zazen. Right? The whole of the refuge of Buddha Dharma Sangha is in Zazen. The whole of all the teachings of Dharma are just in Zazen. That was very radical. And it was not at all what he had learned as a Tendai monk, which had elaborate practices, many, many of them. And it was Dogen's version. For Dogen, being never disrespectful, Bodhisattva was just sitting in zazen. That's what sitting in zazen was. It was that's why he says it's not meditation. So this is an ex- inspiring example. This Bodhisattva, never, never disparaging, not only loves everyone, but respects them in an ultimate way, is in awe of everyone he meets. That is a great practice, right? Think of it. To practice being in awe of everyone you meet, having affection for them, caring for them, and seeing them as a Buddha. And to bow to them, even if they revile you for it. And why would they revile you for it? Because it's a corrupt age, and they don't believe it themselves. Maybe they think you're making fun of them. But you never, ever give up your love and respect for them, and you bow to them. So what I'm saying here then is that when we take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha, we are taking refuge in this very body, in the earth, in the physicality, the materiality that is the special gift of this Saha world. And we understand that it's this very physicality, which we know is inherently impermanent and therefore painful, that is the source of our joy and of our belonging to one another. Thanks to the body, thanks to my body, thanks to your body, we belong to one another. And whenever there is a body, there is a Buddha and a Buddha together take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha is to take refuge in our own breathing body. 
And when we know our body and what it truly is, naturally, we will bow to everyone and everything in deep respect and love. And, and every time we sit in Zazen, we're training our hearts in this refuge. We're taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and we're training our hearts in this way to see it and feel our lives uh, in that way. So that was what I wanted to tell you today. Thank you for getting me to think about this refuge. Uh, it's a wonderful teaching and practice. Thank you so much, Norman, for your beautiful talk. Um, it really strikes my heart. And I just wanted to share uh, something and ask a question about it, which is right before logging in this morning, I checked email and we had advertised or publicized that you are going to be giving this talk on our local meetup group. And somebody took the opportunity to write to us with their comment. So look, I'll read the comment in a moment, but they were commenting on the fact that we at Austin Zen Center have a flag hanging outside our doors that says Black Lives Matter. And the comment said, I have to cancel. They were, they were, uh, they had RSVP that they were going to come today, but then they said, I have to cancel. I won't walk under a BLM flag that promotes the kind of tyranny of the mind that the Buddha spoke contrary to. Do some research. And um, so this was the comment. Mm -hmm. And it, it was kind of, I, I had a terrible feeling after receiving this comment. Yeah. Just like, yeah. what? 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 Is, where is this coming from? And just realizing how, um, how polarized our society has become. And so this teaching that you've given us today, that you've um, brought to us from the Lotus Sutra, um, yes, these are really hard times. <laughs> so yeah. I wonder if you could say something about um, how, maybe, maybe the question is how, how does softening our hearts and um, allowing for um, the universe to be as it is um, and seeing everyone as Buddha mm. so I, I yeah. was actually yeah. thinking of like how I would what my you know my reply to this person which I don't need to reply you know there's no need for replying but I I did have the thought while you were talking of things I might say so you know may you be a Buddha <laughs> for one yeah. but uh, but I wanted to hear your thoughts well, uh, we are polarized. Re are we, really? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we read that we are, mm -hmm. and we, we think that we are, and we can point to evidence that says that we are. But uh, I'm not sure that we're any more polarized than human beings have ever been. I'm not sure that that's really true. I, I, I don't know. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't. I wouldn't necessarily assume it. And when you read that comment, I thought to myself, well, that's a reasonable comment. I wonder what they're thinking, how they're, somebody maybe thinks they uh, have a per perspective on the teaching of the Buddha that would tell them that Black Lives Matter is somehow uh, a mistake. 
and I wonder what they what their point of view is. I would like to hear it. I would I would like to talk to them about it. Sounds sounds like a cogent comment actually. And uh, then it also makes you realize that I was thinking about this very thing the other day uh, as I was walking. Uh, we have a Black Lives Matter sign in front of our house too, but it hardly makes any difference because nobody ever goes to our house and it's far away, so nobody sees it, you know. <laughs> so we don't have any controversy about it. But I was walking somewhere where there was a Black Lives Matter sign and I realized that um, the phrase Black Lives Matter it looks like it says Black Lives Matter, but it doesn't. It says very different things to very different people, right? And isn't that interesting? As a, as a writer and a poet, I'm interested in this, right? That I can say the same phrase and it could mean a lot of very different things. So a lot of that has to do with context, what other words are around it, right? But here, the context is given by a person's life. That's the context. So it's like my friend, Rabbi Lou, he, he, used to, he would tell the story about someone would uh, come into his office and, and really angry. And he would say, I am angry with God, you know, because of this and that. And so Rabbi Lou would say, well, tell me about this God that you're angry at. And then the person would tell him all about this God that the person was angry at. And Rabbi Lou would say, oh, you don't believe in a God? I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> in other words, probably if the person explained to you what Black Lives Matter meant, you would say, I don't believe in Black Lives Matter either. Because mm -hmm. I don't believe in all the things you think Black Lives Matter means. I don't believe in that either. I, when I hear Black Lives Matter, I'm thinking of something entirely different, right? And I think a lot of the polarization has to do with that, yes. right? It, it, we're not, we, we don't even know what we mean to one another. We don't even know what we're saying to one another. So we have to get past the uh, manufactured contexts and really hear one another. And we might still disagree, you know? Um, to me, what I understand about Black Lives Matter is I don't think Black Lives Matter is trying to tell us that Black lives are more important than other lives. I think Black Lives Matter is trying to tell us that we have not been noticing that Black lives are as important as other lives. Therefore, we have to say Black Lives Matter because maybe you don't think Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean Black lives should, everybody should stop everything they're doing and only think about black lives. It means think about black lives because you haven't been thinking about it. But somebody else might say, no, it means, it means that, uh, you're, that you're telling me I'm a racist, it means, or it means that I should think about everything, I should forget everything and only think about black lives. What if I want to think about other kinds of lives? So when people say all lives matter, well, who disagrees with that? And yet all lives matter seems to be anti-Black Lives Matter, right? If somebody says all lives matter, we don't hear, oh yeah, I agree, all lives matter. We don't hear that. We hear, oh, you don't like all <laughs> Black Lives Matter. So it gets all very confusing. But everybody's, you know, suffering in their own way. And uh, people, I think, feel very defensive now because they think, 
I was a, I'm a nice person and I like everybody and now you're telling me I'm a racist just because I'm white? Boy, does that make me mad. Who are you to tell me that? You know, so then that's, what they, that's what they think, maybe. I don't know what anybody thinks really. And I don't even think people themselves know what they think. I, I confess, I myself don't know what I think. <laughs> I don't really know. And the more I think about what I think, the less I'm sure what I think, you know? Yeah. So not only don't they report what people think, but people themselves don't know what they think. But I would say that if you bow to everybody and are awestruck by their presence and think that they're a Buddha, you can't go wrong. I think you'll be okay. So yeah, I, I would, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know how much time you have or whether you're up for it, but you could invite that person to tea and say, wow, you know, that's a new thought about Black Lives Matter that I'm not aware of and I'd like to talk to you about it, not to defend myself, but just to hear where you're coming from. But yes, if we, if we, if we do speak out, uh, we can expect those kinds of reactions. Mm. You can't be frightened by people you know, saying, I don't ever want to set foot in your door again, or yelling at us. People will yell at us from time to time. <clears throat> and one of the things that it says in that chapter is that when people yell at us, it's a good thing because it gives us a chance to practice strength and patience and love. It forces, it's easy to love people in the Sangha, right? It's so easy to love them, but it's harder to love somebody who's mad at you because of something you said or did. Therefore, it's really good to uh, have that happen to you. Uh, it makes you strong and opens your heart more. So. Anyway, sorry that happened, but maybe it's a good good thing. Thank you. Yeah. It strikes me that what you said about embodiment and, and um, being a bomb, actually. Yeah. Often this B A L M. B A L M. Yes. Yes, that the polarization um, often becomes um, more polarized because of the lack of that embodiment. Yeah, and, and to be sure, you know, where I live, uh, I seldom encounter that. You're, you're living in a place where uh, it's more likely. It's a, you're, it's a more embattled space, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's easy for me to say these things, right? <clears throat> thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's wonderful to see you, Marco. It's really good to see you too. Any other uh, questions or comments? Uh, I have a note that Mary Shepard had her hand up and Mary, I don't see you in my pages, so are you still here? Um, yep, I'm here. Why don't you go ahead, please? Uh, first, to um, uh, to get to Norman, thank you so much for your talk and your teachings. I um, have studied the uh, Lotus Sutra and felt like I didn't have a clue. And somehow, something about your talk 
make me think, well, maybe that's okay. It'll just, I just got to work on it more or, but maybe that's okay. Um, because it's, um, cause it, it just, it, what you said resonated. Oh my God. The, it's like, I, I was looking for the sutra in the Lotus Sutra and I was just like, <laughs> what? what, where, what? And then I thought, well, I'm just missing something because I don't have that, um, you know, that my Zen mind isn't there yet. So, um, so I got to, you know, maybe I have to um, like study it again. I got to start all over because it's, it's not there yet. So that was my first comment. My second was um, in, I think, our country is not as much, there's a lot of talk about polarism, polarization, because the media people find it a handy tag. I think the country is maybe revealed for the real way, more like it's what it is. And the education that I've gotten in the last year about um, Black Lives Matter has to do with my understanding of the structure of our country and the, I mean, what it says to, to me is that there are people who also understand that built into the structure of our con com country is the um, a foundational approach that persons of African descent were only like slaves were brought over not to uh, take for their their work quality their ability to work. They were not, uh, I mean, and so it was, so even there are documents that talk about how it was calculated, the minimum amount of food and clothing and yes. the minimum amount of housing to keep this, and the slave life, they, slaves were not intended to live. When people, slaves were brought over for Africa, from Africa, they weren't intended to live. They were intended to come over and work until they die. And then that was supposed to be it. They weren't supposed to live. So African-Americans were not, our black lives were not included sort of in the foundations of this government because we weren't supposed to be living. We're supposed to like work in the fields and die. And then that was that. Yeah, property. Yeah, right. And, and, uh, and so to take both of what your points and, and briefly make a comment. Um, yeah, I mean, I, a lot, I think your experience with the Lotus Sutra is not unusual. I think most people who read it have that experience that they don't kind of get it or they don't find any beauty in it. And, and when you think about it, it's a text that was produced um, like 2,000 years ago in another culture. 
So it takes some kind of getting used to, you know, the way it works. So it's not surprising that most people have trouble with it. And it does probably require some commentary and guidance in order to read it and appreciate it. And, and if you ever want to read it, all the talks that I've given on it, I've done it, read it with people a number of times. All of them are on the Everyday Zen website, freely offered. There's no charge or anything. So if you ever want to read it with commentary, you can just listen to the audio commentary. But don't be surprised. I don't, I don't think it's any, you know, sort of deficiency in you that makes you not appreciate the Lotus Sutra. And then what you said after that about Black Lives Matter. Yeah, that's the thing is that people don't know what you said is a fact, of course. And people just don't know history. And, and yes, I myself, as you, just as you said, you've been learning a lot. I've also been learning a lot. And you have to be willing to sit still and learn the truth about what has happened. And uh, I think a lot of people... Uh, haven't learned that and and uh so when they think of black lives matter they don't have a context they don't know why that phrase is being proposed and they don't know what's behind it so when people uh don't understand something you have to be patient with them but there is a truth here that needs to be understood and uh some people are trying to understand it and other people don't yet understand it. I, I like to believe that a fair-minded, decent human being, which I think almost everybody is, if they could sit still and actually hear this truth, they would also feel it with sympathy. But uh, we, we're a lot, we got a long way to go. Now, uh, just to mention, I don't know if everybody knows that if you click on the participants button on the bottom of your screen, to the far left, you'll see a little blue hand that looks like this, only it's blue. If you click on that, then whoever's calling on people can see your hand. And I know that John High, he happened to be on the first screen that I could see, and John High actually raised his physical hand. So John... Now you're not on my screen. Oh, there you are. Yeah, you switch places. Do you still want to say something? You can unmute yourself and say something. And after that, if anybody raises a blue hand, maybe we can see that blue hand on the screen. Yeah, John, what did you want to say? Others also, I'll, I'll call on them next. Thank you. Okay. I wanted, uh, thank you, Norman. It's wonderful to, to be with all your bodhisattvas. I wanted to follow up uh, on Moko's uh, question because um, the this chapter, this uh, beautiful story is, of course, very idealistic and, and, and rightly so to be a non-disparaging bodhisattva and an aspiration to bow to every being. And maybe we misunderstand one another and maybe uh, we're misunderstood and we misunderstand others. But what is that balance in your mind when you're bowing? And I don't want to categorize any pretty any particular person or class or structure, political structure. But when you're bowing to someone who is violent, uh, who is intent on doing harm, and that the type of polarization that has existed throughout time is meeting you face to face. Um, how, 
how do we, how do you, how do any of us uh, find that balance between bow and the protecting other human beings, including our oneself? I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, and to be sure, uh, the whole idea of bodhisattvas is idealistic. It's it's meant to be. Um, when you see in Buddhist art, you, like, for example, you can see um, uh, pictures of the Buddha's parinirvana. And there'll be a gigantic Buddha, you know, laying down on his side, having passed away. And then all around that gigantic Buddha, there'll be like little figures, many, many, many of them. And, and among the little figures, there'll be some arhats and uh, practitioners of the original Buddhism who will look like human beings, all sort of like maybe old and wizened and messed up, and most of them are crying and anguished with grief. And then there's all these bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas are always young and beautiful and smiling. So, so even as the Buddhists pass, all the bodhisattvas are young and beautiful and smiling because they're not human. They're ideals. But uh, so we're not meant to be perfect bodhisattvas in, in our humanness. We're human, so we're always going to be imperfect. And that we don't need to criticize ourselves for that. We need to realize that the ideal bodhisattva is also something in our hearts. You know, ideals are, after all, projections, right, of what humans see as possible or actually impossible, but we want, to, we want to realize it anyway. So we have that in us, but we can never really be quite like an ideal bodhisattva. But it still makes sense for us to have those ideals and strive toward them, knowing that we will never achieve them. Um, now, as to the practical problem of what do you do when there's someone violent or meaning you harm and so on and so on, <clears throat> I think the well-trained bodhisattva heart always sees all beings as Buddha and, and sees that a violent being, a destructive being, is a, is a human being that is especially precious because we're really frightened for that human being. The karmic consequences of being a rotten person are very dire. And so we look at a person who is that way and we think, wow, you know, that, that is very, a very sad and dangerous situation that that person is in. We re our heart really goes out to that person. So that's what we feel. We don't feel like, I hate this person or, you know, I'm afraid of this person. Ideally, we, as much as we possibly can, and I think this is a spontaneous feeling that comes out of our years of training, we look at the person and we see a person in great jeopardy. Now, I pointed out in the story of never disparaging Bodhisattva that when people threw things at him, he moved out of the way. He didn't like stand there and let them throw tomatoes on him. He moved out of the way. So we should move out of the way when someone is about to hit us with something. We should move out of the way. Or even better, we should prevent them from hitting us or anybody else because when they do that, it's very bad for them. It's bad for us too, but it's really bad for them. So yes, if we can prevent violence, if we can stop it, we should certainly do that. So bodhisattvas sometimes need to appear very courageous and sometimes even fierce and warlike 
And you know, you see this in Tibetan Buddhism, warlike Buddha protectors who rise up with wrath to prevent harm. So sometimes we have to take that aspect, but in our hearts, not with hatred. Uh, and, and you know, realistically speaking, we're human beings, so we might feel frightened and we might feel antipathy and even hatred for someone who's attacking us, but we understand where that comes from and we know better. So in the moment we might feel that way and after where we might then reflect, oh, look how frightened I was and look how angry I was at that person. And so, okay, that's me now and I'm continuing to practice and I hope later on I'll have a more peaceful heart, which will make it easier for me to overcome that person. So, you know, we do need like, for example, if there are, you know, sociopaths and, and crazy people on the street hurting people, we should take them off the street and make sure they don't hurt people. But, you know, we shouldn't incarcerate them in horrible prisons that only make them do that stuff more and more and more, right? We should take them and with humane treatment, try to deal with them in some enlightened way instead of what we've been doing here in the United States for decades now. It's crazy. It's crazy stuff we're doing. It's, like, it's almost like lunatics were in charge almost to be doing what we're doing here and making matters worse and worse and worse and worse. We shouldn't be doing that. We should have justice in our um, police system and so on and so on. We do need protectors and police, you know, but we need people who know what they're doing, who are fair-minded and compassionate, you know, and they need to be trained. I think to me, like the whole thing with the police, I mean, like when you consider police training in the United States, it's terrible training. It's training that will make what's happened happen. Imagine if police to be a policeman, what if you had to have like a two-year course? Yeah, I think you can become a policeman in five minutes, you know? All you need to do is know how to whack someone and know how to shoot a gun. Then you're a policeman. But what if you had to train for like two years to be a policeman and you had to train in, what if meditation was part of it, you know? Self-reflection, right? And, and thinking about compassion was part of it and having a basic psychology was part of it. So you understood people and so on and so on. Why, why don't we train policemen for two years or more so that they know what they're doing? Probably most of the policemen are good people, but their training is so bad that it's not working. So yeah, so we, as bodhisattvas, we need that training too. And we're, that's what we hope we're doing in our meditation halls and on our cushions. We're training ourselves to be effective bodhisattvas, realistic bodhisattvas in this world, we hope, yeah. Thanks, John. Always great to see you guys. See Thank you, Norman. Thank you. Monica Solomon was has been waiting, and uh, and then we have Tracy and Jess, if she'd still like to, and Monica Winkleman, still to come. Thanks. Thank you for your words today, and thank you to everybody um, that is here. And my question is: I know you uh, quoted uh, tra the translation by Jean Reeves. But I'm wondering if there is um, a written uh, translation with commentary. And excuse me for my ignorance, but that's, I was wondering if you could recommend that. Well, uh, there are many, well, I don't know about many, but several oh. commentaries that I've been using in my talks. One, there, Thich Nhat Hanh has a commentary to the Lotus Sutra that's very lucid and helpful. Okay. Uh, there's another commentary, <clears throat> which is a scholarly book, but very readable, called 
uh, Two Buddhas Side by Side. I think that's the name of the book, Two Buddhas Side by Side. And the authors are uh, Lopez and Stone. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's a good one. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure, I think Gene Reeves himself has a book, which I, I haven't used, but, but Christopher R. Chousseau says, who's I see over there, hi Christopher, uh, says it's good. It's called uh, Stories in, from the Lotus Sutra by Gene Reeves. Okay. There are, and I'm sure there are other commentaries you can get, but the, the one by Thich Han is pretty good. And the one by Stone and Lopez, I think is very good. Okay. Thank you. And I want to say I listen to the Everyday Zen podcast in my car. Your voice is in my car with me all the time. <laughs> Thanks. Thank Thanks. you. Yes, people often tell me that uh, they listen to my podcast as they're falling asleep because it makes them sleepy. They, so uh, this, I, this is my retirement uh, idea that I'll retire and collect money for Everyday Zen Dharma Talks as a sleep aid with no side effects, no chemicals, nothing. Just listen to this and you'll re easily fall asleep and then that will fund my retirement. <laughs> no, they don't make me sleepy. Thank you so much. Well, good, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, Jess, do you still want to ask a question? Sure, it's, it's not a question. Um, uh, but first of all, um, I wanted to tell you that I've been reading your book, The World Could Be Otherwise, uh, very, very slowly, um, like a page a day kind of in tandem with um, an ongoing precepts class. And it's been really nourishing and I would say inspiring specifically. It's added like an overlay of inspiration um, as I kind of learn about the Bodhisattva way and walk along the path um, oh, yeah and then I also wanted to say that um, it was really delightful because the quality of light as you were talking um, and the way that it was interacting with your body um, you, you were kind of like glowing <laughs> yeah and it was like punctuating what you were saying so perfectly and it was just really beautiful so I have a skylight right over my right over <laughs> Not quite right overhead. It's a little bit forward, yeah. So, and the light is always moving, isn't it? Mm, yeah, it was. It was perfect. So, thank you for thank that you. comment. And you know, uh, one of the most beautiful teachings of Buddha Dharma is that uh, the great inspiration is being alive as a human being. That that this is such a rare, and unusual opportunity, and so uh, every minute is an inspiration just to be alive uh, as a human being. And, and, and wouldn't it be nice to realize that when you're kind of downtrodden and you're feeling kind of rotten about the world or about yourself, you remind yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a bunch of um, conditioned thoughts that I'm applying to what is inherently an inspiring and precious and valuable situation. Like, why would I do that to myself? Why would I waste a day of my life? thinking that I'm not a precious, beautiful human being. Yeah, thank you. Tracy. Uh, good morning, Norman. This is- Hi, Tracy. Hi, hey, we, we go back a little ways. We saw each other a couple oh, years ago. Yeah. Your, hair a little, your hair is a little more white than when I saw you last time, but I, re <laughs> I remember you well. 
That's too funny. You said the exact same thing when we saw each other, whatever, a year or two ago, which was when we had not seen each other for like 15 years before that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is going that way. You're right. Well, I think you, you had light-colored hair, and some people have light-colored hair. They go, and their hair turns gray when they're still very young. So I'm sure you're still very young, but your hair... Turns. Oh, yeah. I'm a young 60 now. I'm a young 60. That is young 60. <laughs> and it's funny you should say that just because, not to go down this track, but when I was a young boy and summer would come around in Michigan, my hair would go white from the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Um, hey, you know, um, I, just another little side thing is I, I think, and it does vary, someone posted a note on the chat, uh, <coughs> the training that a police officer receives these days can vary quite a bit. I think in the last decades, there's been a trend toward much more professionalization and even requiring college degrees and that right? That's great. I didn't know that. It is a fact. It is a fact. But the fact is, their job and the, the conditions they have to face on their job, you know, the total neglect that our society shows toward, toward people and their conditions, they're like, I'm sorry, they're like, it's like give them a broom and a gun. As in, it, their, their job brutalizes them, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Just yeah. It's a terrible situation. Yeah, many, many things would have to change. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 It would um, be nice if we thought we had a compassionate society that cared about people. If, that, if that's what everybody thought, everything would be different. And it would make their job a huge, so, and them a very different people. It's they respond, and we all, we all become this way when, I mean, we can't become this way. If, and this is kind of what we're talking about, what you're talking about in the, the Lotus Sutra, which I, that was a knockout talk. Thank you so much. Thank you, yeah. Um, Reb has recently put a lot of us in the mind of the Lotus Sutra. Yes, it's just, uh, we, we don't talk much, Reb and I, but it just so happens that he's also oh, yeah. in the Lotus Sutra, yeah. How coincidental, because, uh, uh, and per your comment, uh, how the Lotus Sutra talks about how great the Lotus Sutra is, and it's kind of like, yeah, you're right. And tell me more, right? We're always kind of like, but, but having just joined somebody uh, in a off, uh, you know, per Reb's offer that we kind of hook up with each other and, and read to each other. And, uh, uh, you know, comment when we're moved. Approach. First of all, I was like, wow, I had no idea it could be that way. It's totally different. Yeah do it read to yeah totally different read it out loud yeah and read it to someone yeah that's beautiful it it really is and, and so all I, i'm sorry all i really wanted to say <laughs> with you at this moment is that through that just that one experience that one that one reading we did last week i got the feeling that what this this teaching is doing is it's like creating the mental conditions the the, men, the, the space, the, the, where, to a kind of openness that is what is, to, well, to our, our, our true nature. You're the conditions of openness. It's not like, and here's what you do, 
Is this how you study your senses? This is a, 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 well, maybe there's some of that. I haven't gotten to that part yet. Mm. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the comment. Thank you. It's so nice to see you. You too. You too. <clears throat> Monica, and then Annette. And I think we'll probably be out of time by then, but we'll see. Monica? Engelman, is she still here? I, thank you. I thought there was another Monica Salomon also. also. Already so thank you. Thank you for being in Austin. It's my first visit in that city. <laughs> I'm coming from Bonn. So I'm very moved uh, to be here and to, to talk a little bit. Um, I find it the longer I the longer I listen to um, podcasts about the Lotus Sidra and the longer I um, read in this book and the longer I kind of resonate um, with the implications and compare to my life, to our life, the more I, I do not like the word idealistic. I start to see it the opposite around. I start to see that if we really hold it true that we have this good heart and everybody is born with this good heart, then there cannot be another way to look for images expressing exactly that. And for me, it is, it is as with old um, fairy tales and old myths describing the human journey, journey. And so for me, it is expressing more truth than any other perhaps teaching with less imagery. This is just my, what I wanted to add. Um, I would prefer to talk in German because it's a bit difficult for me. And I would be interested to hear perhaps just a sentence by Norman to it. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Monica. Yeah, I, I think you could say that. You could say uh, the ideal is more real than the real. Yes. Yeah. Thank that's, you. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And in, in, in a way, that that is that is true. You know that um, maybe you could say what's what's most true about us as human beings is our myths and our stories and our ideals and and the beauty that we produce. Maybe that's more true about us than our sagging skin and our rotten societies and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe that's more true. So yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, yes, people, thank you. People dismiss ideals as being, oh, that's not real. You know, the imagination, that's not real. So we can safely dismiss that. But, it, but it's the opposite. I, I agree with you. It's the opposite. No, yes, and, and I missed some point. I forgot it. Um, I make experiences in the last weeks because I'm criticized quite hard. I go through some things, really, <laughs> really uh, conflicts. And I notice that people smell aspirations. So I doubt that it, it is not about being perfect. I do not like the word in the human realm at all. It is not about these things. It is really about benevolence, I think. I made some mistakes in these weeks, but not mistakes, mistakes, not in the, in the thing that I was so 
cold-hearted or so. I was just overwhelmed or had no time or something like that. And I felt that people, that people like, uh, like that. They feel it. They, they, they are forgiving. Mm. I, they are forgiving when they smell you really want the good. Mm. This is also something I, I think we, under, we underrate that uh, badly. So we can, I think we really can dare more even dare more being good, so to speak, yeah, yeah, yeah. if it makes sense, because sometimes it needs much courage, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't know. It makes makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, completely. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, Annette, would you like to ask your question? So I'll just preface by saying um, thank you to the Austin Zen Center for opening this up. I'm actually a student of Flint Sparks and there's a few of um, us here today. Um, and thank you, um, Norman, for your talk. Um, so I've spent about 15 years just in that space of embodiment and, and uh, living in experience. And I know my vow and I live in my vow, but um, I haven't really been, had a deep relationship with the text. It's more just about um, the experience. And so with, with, in the spirit of always learning and always being open, when you talked about the, the six, the six senses, and how if they're always blessed, um, then we'll be full and totally resonate with that. I'm wondering if that is your interpretation of a certain text or if that's explicitly discussed somewhere that I could uh, look up. Mm. Uh, well, in that chapter of the Lotus Sutra, I, I quoted from it does explicitly talk about the six senses and how each one will specifically be blessed when the transformation that the Lotus Sutra promises occurs. It does, it does, it is specific. Uh, it's not, I mean, of course it's not, it's written from the point of view of first century India, not 21st century uh, America. So you, you may find it odd or not speaking to the way you look at the six senses, but, but it is, it is very explicit. Yeah. Right. And that was the chapter 19. Uh, yeah, I think it's chapter 19, right? The one. Okay. Right yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the six blessings that you uh, referred to, is there a certain place that you would recommend um, to look just in a really basic way that would lay that out? Uh, I'm not sure which six blessings you mean. So you talked about, um, and this is like really, I think, um, simplifying the text, right? Like really um, beginner's text. So I think you were talking about the six, uh, the six blessings of the Lotus Sutra. Well, maybe you mean, like I was saying that in chapter 19, it talks about the blessings that the Lotus Sutra will bring specifically in relation to the six senses. Gotcha. So there's six okay. categories 
of blessings. Each sense has its own, many hundreds. The sutra doesn't list all of them, but it'll say like there's 1,200 blessings of the nose and 800 blessings of the ears and 700 blessings of the eyes. And then it has maybe a paragraph or two listing some of them, but implying that there are more that are not listed. And that is all in chapter 19 of the Lotus Sutra. You could just read that one chapter and find That's it. That's wonderful. Yeah, I'm kind of doing it backwards. I'm like, yeah, I have a felt sense of it. Now I'm going to look up the uh, Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good way. Yeah, that's a good way yeah. to follow, follow what seems immediately interesting to you because of your own experience. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So thank you very much. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Um, I'd just like to read a comment from Bill Harnu in our Sangha that uh, he says, thank you very much, Norman. Good to be reminded that embodied cognition is naturally interpersonal. Peace to all. Mm. And, uh, and Monica comments, thank you for this precious occasion to listen to the Dharma and even put a question. Thank you for your practice. So, mm. so I think maybe uh, we should let Norman go <laughs> back <laughs> to wherever he- Disappear had. back into California. Yeah. Into California. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you so very much on behalf of all of us. Thank you, my pleasure. And giving us this wonderful talk, which fits exactly into what we've been talking about and practicing with all. Oh, good. Period. Yeah. I hope I can see you guys in person one of these days. ASAP. Yes. <laughs>